This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people. The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia's first episode for 2024. My name is Gemma Purdy. With less than a month until Indonesians go to the polls on the 14th of February, the presidential race is in full flight. The faces and names involved are familiar, but as has been the case in recent times, it is the coalitions that have emerged around the candidates which have created excitement and shifted the polling in recent months and weeks. To talk about the presidential election and what has led to the current constellation of candidates and the likely outcome, I'm joined by political scientist Marcus Mietzner. Hello, Marcus. Welcome back to Talking Indonesia. Thanks for having me. Well, Marcus, the presidential election is just around the corner. And so just as a little bit of context for our listeners, can you start by giving us a little bit of background on the three candidates who are running for president? What do you see as their strengths and weaknesses? Well, I think it's important to start with the assessment that at this stage, the runaway favorite is Prabowo Subianto, who not coincidentally is running with Jokowi's son, Gibran, as his running mate. And in almost all credible polls, in head-to-head scenarios, he is about 30 points ahead, both against Ganjar and against Anis Baswedan. So barring any miracles, I think Prabowo is very likely to become the next president. So Prabowo Subianto, of course, to tell your listeners, most of whom will know, uh, the former son-in-law of ex-autocrat Suharto, who subsequently, after Suharto's fall in 1998, first went into exile, then came back and has since tried to become president on numerous occasions. So this is this at least third attempt at the presidency. There were previous attempts at becoming vice president. And he also, even in 2004, was a candidate for the presidential nomination of Golka. So he's been an eternal candidate. But it does look now that finally at the age of 71, he might end up where he always wanted to end up, and that's in the presidency. Now, again, the key in his candidacy and the reason why he's so well ahead of all the others is the fact that Jokowi's son is with him. That fits into the broader strategy of Pabowo, which he has driven for about a year and a half now, and that is to completely change his political image from that of a populist to a pro-status quo politician who can integrate integrate himself into the elite structures of Indonesian politics. So again, to remind some of your listeners, 2014, 2019, Prabowo ran 
a classic populist campaign, very much like Trump, that said this current system is rotten and the only one who can repair it is me. And the way I would do this is essentially dismantling parts of the democratic framework. Now, that has been all completely thrown overboard. Uh, he now says Jokowi is the best thing that ever happened to Indonesia, and I'm I'm the legitimate heir to the president. Now, electorally, that all makes sense because Jokowi retains a very high approval rating of about 80%. So regardless of whether the praise that Prabowo has heaped on Jokowi is genuine or not, it's good electoral strategizing because he clearly has understood that you can't win against such a popular incumbent in any way, even if you were just to try to run against his legacy, because obviously Jokowi can't be running again, but his legacy is looming large. So what Prabowo has, I think, quite wisely decided is that the only way for him to finally get into the presidency is to join Jokowi in many ways and project towards the electorate that he is the appointed heir. And so the other two candidates in the race, so that is the former governor of Jakarta, Anis Baswedan, and the former governor of Central Java, Ganjar Pranowo, they've been completely overwhelmed by this alliance between Jokowi and Prabowo. So in a three-way race, and this is where many people, I think, misunderstand the dynamic, the numbers aren't all that stark in a three-way race. Prabowo is ahead there too, but is leading with about 45%. Uh, Ganjar and Anis follow after that with numbers in the mid-20s. But the really important numbers are the head-to-head -head scenarios. So under the Indonesian electoral system, if no candidate gets to 50 plus 1% on the 14th of February, there will be a second round on the 22nd of June. And in that head-to-head -head scenario, uh, Prabowo would be ahead by about 30 points against either Anis and Ganja. How did they get blown away from the other two candidates by the pairing and the popularity of that decision for Prabowo to pair with Gibran? Completely blindsided or...? What's happened? No, I do think Jokowi was sending signals for quite some time that he was moving away from the party that nominated him in 2014 and 2019, which is the party of Megawati Sukarno Putri, the Indonesian Party of Democracy struggle, PDIP. The the reasons for their falling out do relate to the succession of Jokowi. It was clear to many observers that Ganjar would eventually be the candidate of PDIP because of very high electoral ratings in the survey. And for a long time, it also appeared that Jokowi was supportive of him, right? So Throughout 2022, it did look like Jokowi was pushing for Ganja. Ganja was popular with the electorate, but that it was Megawati who was still holding out. And that essentially the story that was emerging here was Jokowi pushing Ganja, but Megawati resisting. Now, in, in, in that scenario, Megawati, I think, made the strategic mistake of constantly sending messages to Jokowi that she was not prepared to give him any say in the 2024 nomination. 
and by implication, also no say in what comes after his presidency. Right? So the scenario for Jokowi then was one in which a Ganja presidency did actually not look particularly attractive to him because Mega had made it sure that even if she finally nominates him, Jokowi would have nothing to do with it. And that's the loophole in which Paboo perfectly fit in because he did the opposite. He he, he praised on Jokowi and told him that if he were to become president, he would make sure that Jokowi retains influence. Mm. And that all culminated in the nomination of Gibran, which in uh, essence is a formalized promise by Pabod that Jokowi will remain influential. Right? So from Jokowi's perspective, this all makes sense. Right. So he was convinced that under a Ganja PDRP presidency, he would not be integrated in whatever regime was emerging. And so he went for the opposite promise, which was coming from Babo. So that was not in a way, once the Gibran nomination was announced, that was not a shock to anyone who was following events internally. This mm -hmm. had been going on for quite some time. Um, that Gibran then eventually became the candidate. That, of course, as probably your listeners know, was only made possible by a decision of the Constitutional Court that allowed him to run. But that Jokowi was leaning towards Prabowo in whatever constellation, whether that would have been running with another loyalist of Jokowi, Eric Tohir, for instance, that was on the cards for a long time. And we should also not forget that Prabowo was already ahead in the polls prior to Gibran becoming the running mate. The margin simply became much larger after that. So that's why Ganjar went from the front runner in early 2023 to now completely lost in the electoral landscape, because not only has he lost his popularity in a way, he's also lost the message. The message that he was running for a long time was that I am the heir to Jokowi, and Jokowi very publicly, in a way, said, no, you're not. And so now he has nothing to run on. It's very hard for him to switch to an um, opposition. Jokowi message. He tried that for about two or three weeks. Uh, after that, the numbers for him collapsed even more. And now they have settled in some strange, nondescript generic campaign, which is neither anti-Jukowi nor pro-Jukowi, and voters don't get it. Neither does anybody else. Now, with Anes, the issue is that he has run a very consistent campaign, which is an oppositional campaign, a campaign of change. His problem is there's simply no change mood in the electorate that he could connect with. Right? So he's been consistently getting about 25% of the vote, the exact 25% of Indonesians who have been dissatisfied with Jokowi's performance, they are going to Anis. They're not going to Ganja now either. They're going straight to Babo uh, uh, or stay or you know, move with Anis towards the change message. But neither of them seem to have much of a chance of beating Babo in the second round. So now the only really interesting thing for the first round is who will make it into the second round. First of all, will there be a second round? Right. So at the moment, it does look like Babo will get close to the 50 plus one, but not quite close enough. 
Right. So there's not enough like undecided voters who look like they're going to swing. No, no, they they have already in in most of the polls, these undecideds have already been distributed. So Babor is currently at about 45%, but he seems to be stagnant. Right. That's top down. It's very hard for him, yes, to move beyond that. But again, once that moves into a second round, he is about 30 points above either Anis or or Ganja. So the only question now really seems to be, again, whether Pabowo will still be able to manage a 50 plus one outcome. If that happens, then it's all over by the 14th of February. And if that doesn't happen, who will be in the second round? By current trends, it might actually look like it's Anis. At the moment, it's quite close. But the momentum, if you will, the momentum among the losers, if you like, is with Anis that it seems that he might just come out on top and then face Pavor in the second round. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable, isn't it? From what you would have predicted 12 months ago, surely you wouldn't have predicted that. No, no. And and there were many things that curveballs that we didn't really have on the radar. I mean, you might remember this saga about the uh, FIFA Under-17 World Cup where Megawati forced Ganja to make a very unpopular decision, which really was the first dent into his popularity. And if we look back from now, he never recovered from that. Um, And it was representative of a much larger problem, and that was that Ganja was seen as Megawati's proxy rather than Jokowi's. And certainly that's the way Jokowi understood it. And after that event, Jokowi just keeps moving away from Ganja and Ganja gets mm. more and more lost in the electoral landscape. So that I had not foreseen in that way, but maybe I should have. I mean, the, the thing is... Yeah, I mean, something about when I think last time we spoke about the PDIP yeah. and Megawati and a relationship with Jokowi, it was yeah. you were already laying the ground, I think, for Megawati to just yeah. do her own thing. <laughs> yes, I mean, she eventually, I mean, that was the predictable thing. I and mean, she never liked Ganja. That was not the issue. She did make the nomination because the numbers for Ganja were good, but she wanted to make the nomination not because Jokowi pressured her into it. And that then turned into that problem, which I think I underestimated, that Ganja would become the candidate, but the conditions under which he became the candidate slowly withdrew the support from Jokowi. And that's probably where, in hindsight, things could have been a bit more predictable. We all know that Megawati is extremely stubborn and that her view has always been that Jokowi was just an executor of her party's will and that after his 10 years were over, that authority to decide what happens next would return to her. But I think I and probably many others underestimated the extent to which Jokowi would be alienated by that and the determination with which he then would respond to it, because he clearly not only made the decision sometime in the first half of 2023 that he's going to break with PDIP, whether in the open or informally, and then really take the last step, even if that meant things would escalate in the way they did then in October with the decision of the Constitutional Court and the decision to have his son as running mate. So I think, again, if we look back 
at what occurred and where, in hindsight, looked like we could have interpreted them a bit more accurately. I think I certainly underestimated that Jacobi would risk such a major break in his political narrative as well, because he, he was always putting PDIP in the center of his political rise, the story of his political rise. But that all came to an end when he saw the chance that he really would disappear in 2024. And then for him, for many reasons uh, that also have to do with his policy legacy, that was not an option. And so he really resorted to measures that are quite unprecedented. I mean, we should remember and appreciate that Jokowi will be the first president in Indonesian history, and that goes back to Sukarno and Suharto, who successfully engineered a successor into the position. No other president has ever succeeded in putting a person into the presidency after them that was by their design. Everybody tried and everybody failed. Now, Jokowi (laughs) will be, by all accounts, the first one. And and that might be one of the reasons why some of the predictions were wrong. But yeah, the uh, determination of the man, Mm. the preparedness to push the envelope, the willingness to go where previous presidents haven't gone. I think this is something that we are still learning about Jokowi, right? And and I'm certainly part of that, that we constantly had to sort of revise our view of how far Jokowi was willing to go in pushing the boundaries of democracy, for instance. That was his masterpiece, if you like, in that regard. After having pushed on so many other issues, he finally also touched the issue of the term limit, which clearly he would have been happy to get rid of. But the elite opposition made sure that that didn't happen. But then also the dynastic issue on the national level, which, again, so many others have tried but failed. He went for it. Yeah. I mean, when do you think the Gibran question came into the picture? Do you think it is as recent as the last six months or he had a longer term view of his son maybe reaching such heights? I mean, clearly the idea that he wanted his sons, and not only Gibran, but Kaesung as well, to be in politics and at some stage play a very strong role. I mean, that goes back to his initiative to have Gibran succeed him in solo. Right? This was 2020. With Kaesung, of course, who was much younger, you know, he's now in charge of a smaller party, you know, PSI. But the idea of starting a dynastic dynamic here, that's about four years old. Now, whether he believed by 2020 that the vice presidency was an option for 2024, I don't know. Yeah, And I, I don't think he banked on it. I think he probably thought about it, but the constellation only fell into place in 2023. I do think had the normal option with Ganja come through, this would have not been on the table. It was clear that you know, a, a Ganja Gibran ticket would not have been electorally attractive. And I think probably Jokowi would have been fine with it. But again, the way everything fell into place, his sense that you know, he would lose out under a Ganjar scenario. And again, Prabowo was the one who sensed it. I mean, it's not too difficult to figure out that maybe the sitting president would look favorably upon the fact that his son is being mentioned as a candidate. So it was Pabo who mentioned it to him several times. Yes. And eventually he grabbed the opportunity. I don't think it would be right to say Jokowi relented because that would 
assumed that there was great pressure on him and he resisted. I think he, he grabbed the opportunity when he felt that, number one, it was likely that it would be successful because you know, he certainly didn't want Gibran to run. Put him on a losing ticket as well. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That's absolutely right. So that, that was, the, and, and he certainly couldn't be certain of that. Hmm. So he had all the pollsters running the numbers. And that's probably the one thing we can say about Jokowi, that he really, probably better than anyone, understands the Indonesian voter. He understood very clearly that the majority of Indonesians don't have a problem per se with dynastic scenarios. There's a lot of talk about that in the media and in the NGOs and in, you know, the liberal talking shops, but that's not, he's never been concerned about that. And the surveys told him very clearly prior to making that decision that it would be fine. And that's where he grabbed the opportunity. He's a risk taker, but still careful in his risk taking. This was a risk he knew would come out okay for him. And it, it looks like it will. People are actually quite surprised at how well Gibran's presented himself. It seems that he has exceeded their expectations. Well, but that's always the case with low expectations. I don't know. <laughs> oh, sure. So far, he's had one good TV performance mm-hmm. that looked very professionally rehearsed to me. So, but again, we, we've had this in the past. I mean, I, I remember Sarah Palin, for instance, who went up against Joe Biden in the debate and everybody thought she would be completely trashed, but she wasn't because people had already set their expectations so low yeah. that she could only win. You know, if she only at the time produced a few sentences without slipping that would have been seen as a success now with Gibran he took the initiative right not only did he prove that he can actually speak which some people had doubts about because you know he was very tight-lipped in all interviews you know notoriously unwilling to say anything meaningful and suddenly he had to engage and he took the initiative he went on the attack and so he came out with the benefit of low expectations, he came out as the winner of that debate. It's very clear. I mean, Hebron is not a fool. We knew that before. I mean, he's done, by all accounts, a reasonable good job in solo. I mean, I'm not suggesting that he did anything unusual, but you know, he, he knows how to run a city in the way that his father did. And some people actually say better than his father did at the time. Mm-hmm. But he clearly went through some training. He you know, is quick at learning. The other good thing for him about low expectation was that the other two opponents, so the vice presidential candidates, Mohaimin and Mahfoud, clearly underestimated him in that debate. And they came out looking uh, quite surprised that they came under attack, and especially Mahfoud, where he had the disadvantage of high expectations, right? Professor Mahfoud, who is eloquent and so forth, but he fell very flat in that debate. So yeah, it's all going Baboa's way. However, I just want to say it's way too early whether the ultimate goal of Jacobi, and that is to retain influence, will actually succeed. Because this all rests on the assumption that Prabowo is actually serious with his assurances. Gibran's vice president will not matter at all if Prabowo decides that he will not give him any power. And I think that is a likelihood that we need to take into consideration. 
Exactly. And Prabowo probably for a year or so plays along. And then once he has developed his own sources of popularity, his own sources of political power, that he then gradually will move away from Jacobi and also gradually insulate Gibran from political power. I would be shocked if that were not to happen. I mean, it, it's, in my view, inevitable just from a rational choice perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, he has no interest. Jokowi will, by the 20th of October 2024, he will lose all presidential powers. Right? A, a lot of why he is so successful. As he should. <laughs> as, as he should. But a lot of the reasons why the political elite was still so prepared to follow his directives was also, you know, his access to state powers, whether it's the attorney general's office, whether it's the police, whether it's other state instruments. And Jacoby will lose all of that on the 20th of October 2024. And then those powers immediately move to Prabowo. Under that scenario, the question really is, you know, what would keep Prabowo from just cutting out Jacoby from his own presidential calculations. And yeah. again, I, I said earlier that from what Jokowi was facing, you know, on the one hand, Megawati trying to cut him out of the deal-making for 2024, and Prabowo coming with the opposite offers of integration into the post-Jokowi regime, from that perspective, Jokowi's choices made sense. But they only made sense if he actually believed Prabowo's promises. Now, that's a rather risky calculation to make. On the other hand, and again, these are all now the pure speculative issues, but Megawati is stubborn, but we also know how Jokowi managed to maneuver himself out of her orbit after a few months in office. You know, he emancipated himself and so forth. And Ganjar, had he become president, I think would have done the same. And under that scenario, probably Jokowi would have had a, a, a better and more secure space in the post-2024 polity than under the rather shaky promises of Prabowo. But he clearly had decided at the time uh, that Prabowo's promises were strong enough to, to go with. But that's now what he's left with. Yeah. So yes, I think you know Jokowi has in that way taken the right steps. You know his son will now be vice president. The person he wanted to win these elections will probably win. But whether that will all translate into power for Jokowi after the twentieth of October, twenty twenty four, I th I think uh, remains to be seen. So you've just written a book titled "The Coalition Presidents Make." So if we're imagining looking forward, you know, six months or whatever it is, and there is a Prabowo government, what kind of coalition will he need to form? Will they need to form? Jokowi may or may not still be part of that picture. But yeah, so can you imagine what interests, what parties will be important to Prabowo? Yeah, so Prabowo's view on that is interesting because not only has he pledged to continue this model of coalitional presidentialism, which we've now had for the last two decades, he's actually promised to further expand it. He has suggested that he might be the first president under whom every single party will be in cabinet. Right, so, so far, under Yudhoyono and under Jokowi, roughly between 70 and 80% of parliamentary seats were behind the ruling presidential coalition. Now, Prabowo thinks he can actually top that. And that has been his appeal throughout this campaign. 
right? So if we're stepping sort of a little bit into the ideological landscape here, his message has been, well, Anis is representing the religious right, Ganjar, the leftist nationalism, and I'm the one in the middle. And if you want sort of a combination, a, a blending between all of the ideological currents, then I'm the one for you. And that's essentially the message of his campaign, and it has been rather successful. The other message, of course, has been, well, you know, I've been accused of being this tough-talking wannabe autocrat, but, you know, forget about that image. I'm now the cute uncle who's dancing on the stage and, you know, who has mellowed with age, who is not a risk to anybody. Also, very smart electoral strategizing. And I think both of them have worked. So this appeal to say, well, you know, Anis, he's in bed with the Islamists. Ganjar, you know, he's probably not religious enough, but I'm the one who can bring it all together. And indeed, when you look at Pabo's intellectual and political history, he's he's been all over the place. And he's been with the Islamists. He ran with Megawati, don't forget that, in 2009. You know, you know, he's still running around in a Sukarnoist safari uniform with the sunglasses and, you know, the Sukarnoist microphone during his speeches and so forth. So, so he is trying to cover all of the ideological elements of Indonesian society. And so he might be successful with that. So we always have seen, let's say, under Megawati, then, you know, or a Megawati endorse presidency like Jokowi's. PKS would not be part of the government because Megawati thinks it's too Islamist, too right on the ideological spectrum. Uh, and at the same time, you know, if you had an honest presidency, probably PDIP would not be in government. But that's essentially what Pabobo is saying. Come all to me, come all to daddy. You know, I'm the one who can bring it home for you. And he might as well succeed. I mean, at the moment, yeah. You know, there was there was a, a time, I think, where Megawati and PDRP were angry, not so much with Pabo, but with Jokowi. But now my reading of the map is that they've essentially dropped Ganjar. Ganjar is on his own. Megawati's not campaigning for him. Uh, hardly anybody else is. And that there's a lot of time, even, you know, let's say the election is over on the 14th of February, then there would be 10 months in which coalition building could be negotiated. And even if it's in June, there's still about four months for that to happen. So a Prabowo presidency, to come back to your question, would look very similar in terms of the inclusiveness of coalition building and might, as I indicated, even go beyond that. And again, I would not be shocked if the main message of Prabowo's first cabinet would be that he is the first post-Sohata president who got everybody into cabinet. What are the implications, Marcus, of that for democracy and how we in the West might perceive democracy as having, you know, a healthy opposition to government? Yeah, I mean, that principle of effective opposition has been undermined anyway under the dynamics of coalition of presidentialism, you know, under SPY, under Yudhoyono. You know, there were just a handful of parties that were not part of government, about you know, 30% of the seats were in the hand of the opposition. 
under Jokowi now, he controls 82% of parliamentary seats in parliament. There's only two parties that are not part of the government. And those parties aren't really aggressive oppositional parties either. You know, they know it's much better for them to make some deals with the government over resources, budgets, and so forth. So that would be further undermined. But part of why this model of declining democracy in Indonesia has been so successful is that any decline has been gradual and in fact has been so carefully calibrated that much of the population doesn't even notice. And so we look at the surveys and the vast majority of Indonesians not only say that they prefer democracy to autocracy, but they also think that the way the current democracy is being practiced is satisfactory to them. Right? So whatever is happening, and, and this is where, again, Jokowi understood his voter. Right? So they don't care about dynasties. They don't really care about somebody like Pabowo with a questionable human rights record coming in. For them, that's all uh, part of a history that most of them don't even remember. And that's very similar to, you know, for instance, the reaction to Duterte in, in the Philippines, you know, where 85% loved Duterte and believed he was fully compatible with their own support for democracy. And so many Filipinos at the time, they said, well, I love democracy, but I also approve of extrajudicial killings. And I love Duterte. Now, all of that was for them compatible. And so now we have a similar situation in Indonesia where, where people take note of all the things that are happening. And in fact, we have surveys that say 70% of Indonesians believe that it is now harder to express your opinions freely than it was some years ago. And yet the same people when then ask whether democracy works well in Indonesia say yes. Right? So that's the trick. That's the beauty of elite manipulation of democracy in Indonesia, that they've been doing it. Yeah, they have been undermining democracy, not through uh, blatant manipulation, not through arrests of all opposition leaders, but through micro-interventions into the political system that step-by-step step hollowed out democracy, but left democracy standing. That's the important thing, right? That's, that's a crucial part of the calculations. I don't think that the end game of the current elite is the abolition of democracy, and it's not Pabowa's end game anymore. It might have been 10 years ago, but now I think everybody has understood that democracy actually works well for the incumbent elite, and there's no need to get rid of it, right? Mm -hmm. Because it would create upheaval, it would internationally create some discontent with Indonesia, investment probably would suffer and so forth. So democracy as it stands, as it is currently operating as an elite controlled democracy in which the formal processes of democracy are continuing, but the elite determines the overall direction of the regime, that's a perfect scenario for Prabowo and the elite that supports it. And for Jokowi, of course, as well. So the elections that are coming up, I mean, is that just performative? Do they matter? They matter in the way that the character, the personality, the instincts of a president's always matter. Right? And I think in some of the uh, literature, whether it's the cartel literature or whether it's the oligarchy literature, that element has generally been downplayed. I don't subscribe to the cartel theory. I, I think the president does matter. The president is 
the key figure who has to hold this coalition together. It's not a puppet created by the cartel to lead it. And the same with the oligarchy theory. I don't think Jokowi, for instance, was a puppet of the oligarchs. The oligarchs didn't like him at the beginning. They had to make compromises with him. And in a way, you know, he had to make compromises with them just as they had to make compromises with him while in office. And so what the personal instincts are of a president, what his sort of ideological predispositions are, that does matter. But the overall architecture of power in Indonesia does not change, and it will not change after this election. We have broad coalitions in which not only parties, but big veto players, if you like, the military, the police, the Muslim organizations, the bureaucracy, local governments, everybody is sitting literally in cabinet, in the government. And it's that big coalition that has vested interests that are shaping the way Indonesian politics works out. Now, the president, again, the president, knowing about these vested interests, renegotiates them over time. He plays off, and that's the important part, he plays off the various powers against each other, a crucial element of the constitution of these coalitions. And that's why both Yudhoyono and Jokowi, and I, both of them I've talked to about that. I mean, why these big coalitions? It's not really in line with much of the literature because much of the presidentialism literature was suggested more people in the coalition, more actors in the coalition means less influence for the president. But actually, that's not the case. The opposite is the case in Indonesia. People bring in additional parties, additional actors, so that they can reduce the influence of particular actors by watering them down, by diluting their influence. No single one has a particular amount of power that could challenge. Yeah, so for instance, I mean, take Jokowi. Jokowi at the beginning, his first year was terrible, and he was weak because he was dependent on PDIP support. How did he emancipate himself from PDIP support? Well, he brought in Golka, he brought in Petiga, he brought in other parties. And with that, he radically changed the power constellation. He turned the tables on Megawati. And so that's where he learned, oh, more people, more actors, more groups in my coalition actually increase my power. It's not a zero-sum game. Yeah? So if I'm in a very Machiavellian way, I using my position as the moderator of this coalition, then more actors means more opportunities of intervention. Yudhoyono already practiced that. Same thing, uh, again, we don't have to go into the details here, but there was a time where Yudhoyono uh, was under pressure to remove PKS from his government and people within his government were pushing him to do so. And Yudhoyono's answer was, why would I do that? If I remove PKS, then Golka will become more influential. And my own vice president, Yusuf Kala, why would I want him to be more powerful, right? So no, the, the balance, it's all about the balance, right? And so the temperament, the instincts of a president, I think, do matter, right? And in that, in, only in that sense, it would have mattered whether Anis Ganjar or Pabo come in, because as you very well know, there have been questions about Pabo's temperament. And that is part of his success in the revisionism, if you like, 
that he's been able to leave behind, you know, that image of the angry Prabowo, the Prabowo who loses control very quickly, the, the, you know, who explodes uh, if he's just slighted a little bit. Whether that's still with him, we don't know. But what matters for him electorally is that voters seem to believe him. And Gibran has certainly had an impact on his image. Like even the whole fun thing with Prabhu has been in response to Gibran kind of mocking him in a fun way and they're having this little banter. Yeah, I wonder whether that actually, you know, has a lot to do with Gibran. I think, yeah, yeah, I I think he's relying and this is the strength of Prabhu this time around compared to previous campaigns. He is relying a lot on surveys. Mm-hmm. Remember that in 2014 and 2019, he's essentially been manipulating surveys. You know, there were surveys, his understanding of surveys at the time was, I want surveys that show me winning, even if he wasn't. And I think what he's learned now is you actually got to listen to the pollsters, the credible ones, and you got to address the weaknesses that come out of these polls. And again, he's learned from the pollsters, there's nothing you can do about Jokowi's popularity. It's just there at 82%. So if you can't beat it, you got to join it. That's exactly what he's done. Uh, but he's also, I think, responded to concerns about his personality. And part, and you know, he, he has foreign advisors who also advise Bombong Marcos mm. in the Philippines. And it was the same thing. How do we get that autocratic image out of the Marcos family, there was a lot of you know whitewashing of the history involved. And so in this case, they just decided, you know, let's turn him into this fun person. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the, the, use, the use of, you know, comic figures and, and cartoons. Yeah, they, they, they really turned, in a way, Prabowo into a cartoon. I know, and, but and it's going it, to be an election winner, perhaps. Again, if you strip it all down to the essentials, what really made Babowo the winner of this was Jokowi's decision. Yeah. To throw his weight behind him. That's it. Yeah. I think it would have been a much closer election just with that. Uh, but everything on top, you know, the revisionism of the history, the change of his image and so forth, I think it it helped. Mm. I think, and this is the problem with some of these instant analyses of elections now. Now everybody's talking about, you know, the dancing and the cute image and so forth. It's a side story. And yes, it may have helped him uh, in some way. But at the end of the day, if we look at the politically decisive moments of this election, we would have to nominate what Jokowi did. Mm-hmm as the decisive one. And that, again, is is new for us because it's the first time mm. that an outgoing president actually had that influence. Yeah, we've talked about this before, about Megawati being the kingmaker. Megawati would have been the kingmaker in terms of the nomination, right? But the uh, yeah. way she then sent, as it now turns out, the wrong signals to Jokowi, she ruined that very nomination. So, and this is again, we go back to the things that we can learn from this. You know, a year ago, I, I would have not believed that Jokowi, as outgoing president, would have had such an impact on the election because Yudhoyono certainly hadn't. Jokowi, when he became president in 2014, Yudhoyono had endorsed Prabowo, made no difference. So, this is something new. 
Mm. All right. Well, this is for the next book and this is going to be our next podcast, right? Because I want to know what has driven Jokowi to this position that he needs to have this legacy and this power beyond his presidency. But we probably can't get into it today, but it's the beginnings and you've given us so much food for thought. Hopefully, too, Marcus, we will not lose hope in the Indonesian Democratic Project. But let's see what happens February 14th. Yeah, so just to finish on that note, so there's always sort of a glass half full and glass half empty. In this context, the good news, I think, is that Indonesian democracy will endure, but it will endure in a continuously diminishing format. I don't think it will cross over into autocracy anytime soon, but it, there's also no scenario under which I see a strengthening of democracy. Right? And as I mentioned earlier, that's the beauty for the elite. That's actually not coincidental. That's part of the plan to reduce the quality of democracy in a way that it's almost unnoticeable to the population and it remains elite control. But it's not, I think the goal is really not to overturn democracy. So you can take some encouragement for that. So I think we will still have a democracy in Indonesia, even under Prabowo, but it will be one in which minorities, those that are not interesting enough to the big coalitions, will be sidelined, where civil liberties will further come under pressure and so forth. But all the hallmarks of democracy, I think, will remain in place. Formal democracy, competitive democracy, in which elites compete for power, but then once that's done, decide to share it, that will continue. As ever, a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you. That was Marcus Mietzner, Associate Professor in the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the ANU. Marcus's latest book is The Coalition's President's Make, Presidential Power and Its Limits in Democratic Indonesia, published by the Cornell Modern Indonesia Project. In 2023, he is currently working on an account of the 10 years of Jokowi's presidency. Talking Indonesia will return on the 1st of February, hosted by Tito Ambio. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time... This has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.